Welcome to Before the Ballot, a podcast series designed to educate voters before they cast their ballots this November. I'm your host, Elizabeth Donahue, and joining me today to discuss fake news and foreign interference in our elections is Jacob Shapiro. Jake is a professor of politics and international affairs at Princeton and directs the Empirical Studies of Conflict Project. His research covers conflict, economic development, and security policy. He has published two books and written for numerous academic and policy journals. He is also a veteran of the United States Navy. Welcome to the show, Jake. Thanks for having me, Elizabeth. So let's just dive right in. It seems like much of our current politics are concerned with domestic issues, healthcare, the economy, etc. Will foreign policy play a major role in this upcoming election? I don't think it will. I think there are a number of really disturbing things that have gone on in terms of foreign policy in the last few years, which would be in a normal election season prominent in the campaign. But I think in this election season, especially with the current trends in COVID, it's just not going to rise above, above the churn. There's going to be so much news about COVID, about economic challenges, and I think that's just going to dominate the discussion in the campaign. And it's also the space where the contrasts are easiest to draw. Given that, are either of the campaigns even coming up with a foreign policy platform? So certainly the campaigns are working on them. What they're going to be is hard to know. The most coherent line of argument, which has come out of the Trump administration on foreign policy so far, is that the United States and and Europe and liberal democracies generally have misplayed the engagement with China over the last 20 years, that they have engaged China in a way in which they envisioned that opening to China and working with them would lead to gradual liberalization of the country. And they point out correctly that that has not happened. In fact, quite the opposite. China has worked hard at perfecting a kind of digital uh, panopticon to make sure that they can control their citizens. They are um, engaging very clearly in ethnic cleansing in Western China. And so there's, you know, there's not a lot of evidence that that approach has worked. And so I think the the Trump administration and and certain members of it have articulated that quite strongly. And that's the the kind of core line that you see from them. It's a little bit less clear to me what the foreign policy uh, arguments will be that are going to come out of the Biden campaign. I think that's being discussed right now. And I suspect they will evolve around restoring American leadership and restoring a sense around the world that America is an ally that can be counted on to fulfill its commitments and act in the good of countries around the world, not just in its own interests. But it's really too early to see. And I should note for our listeners that we are taping this in July. And so it may be that by September, you know, a a more robust foreign policy plan has come out of the Biden campaign. Yes, for sure. There will for sure be a foreign policy platform. It will have a number of key elements. It will speak to what should be done with respect to climate change, with respect to cooperation on COVID, with respect probably to cooperation on labor rights. There will be a number of things in there, but what those are is right now being worked out. So you talked about how other countries view the United States and that part of Biden's platform at least might be trying to resurrect some of those relationships. Clearly, President Trump has centered much of his agenda on quote unquote America first and those Mm -hmm. ideals. And I wondered what America first looks like to those on the international stage who are looking in at America? It's a great question, Elizabeth. And I think what it looks like is a rejection of a number of positions that had been agreed to and compromised on by the community of predominantly Western wealthy countries over the last 30 years. 
And so, you know, from abroad, you look at U.S. policy towards climate change under the Trump administration. And what you see is that this um, thing which concerns, which is a prominent concern of many countries uh, around the world and which is very important to them and for which they are making substantial investments, the United States turning away from that. You look at decision uh, not to enter into the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP, which the United States and its allies in the Pacific Rim spent years negotiating. And what that says to countries is not just that the United States is putting itself first, but that the investments of time and energy and compromise under the previous administration were not going to be honored in any way by the new one. And I think what that looks like ultimately is that America is a less reliable partner than people had thought. I think there was always this sense that no matter who the president was, in the United States, there was a strong institutional basis for American foreign policy that was never going to shift too quickly. That people in Congress and in the foreign policy, at least in both parties, that they agreed on certain core principles and we're going to act on them in the international arena, which meant that there would never be these very rapid shifts in American policy. And what that meant for our partners was that you could negotiate with us towards the end of an administration and be confident that agreements which were reached would be carried forward in some measure by the next administration, that it wasn't purely transactional within the context of one administration, but was a longer term agreement between the institutions of one country and the institutions of another. What I think America first looks like uh, from abroad is in some ways proof that that's not really the case, that a president who comes in who sees the world in a dramatically different way can in fact shift American foreign policy dramatically in a very short period of time. And that makes us a much more, I'm not sure what the right word is, but in some sense problematic partner down the line because our partners and allies can never be sure that a given set of policy choices will last longer than the end of the current administration. Right, so that continuity and longevity of, of international agreements seems much more tenuous. Absolutely. And look, there are like lots of reasons to say that the consensus American foreign policy over the last 15, 20 years has not been great and has messed up in important respects. I'm not articulating this necessarily as like a defense of what that consensus was. But to our partners on the outside, what it looked like was there was a strong core that they could count on and bargain against and work with regardless of who is in charge. And what the Trump administration has shown is that is not, in fact, the case. And that will have implications for, for decades, long after uh, other presidents come in and approach foreign policy in different ways. So, of course, you know, arguably, President Trump formed his American first agenda, not so much for an international audience, but more for the voting audience in the United States, and in particular, his base. Um, how has the American first agenda worked out with his base, do you think? So I think it's really hard to know what President Trump's America First foreign policy looks like to his supporters because they haven't been polled extensively. What I think is clear is that the economic benefits which were claimed for some of the actions, like uh, leaving TPP, like renegotiating trade agreements with China, those things have not yet been realized. And they may be coming and it's hard because you know COVID interrupted all of that, but there's not an obvious uh, win that can be pointed to in which actions on the international stage have led to clear benefits 
for the president's base in the United States. So pivoting a little bit from this discussion about political strategy and American first, um, mm-hmm. let's look at the misinformation campaign. Pretty much everyone agrees, uh, including our security agencies, um, that the campaign was affected by misinformation and fake news. Can you talk a little bit about how misinformation has played into some of the partisanship in our current politics? I can talk a little bit, Elizabeth, about how the operators behind the misinformation campaigns have tried to use it. We don't actually have a lot of reliable evidence on its effect. So what we know with great confidence is that uh, Russia and Iran and perhaps a couple other countries have tried to inject content into social media in the United States in an effort to polarize American politics, to basically pick at highly divisive political issues and amplify both sides of the discourse and move them uh, further out. What we don't know is we don't know the effect of this on the discourse. So what I find you know, disturbing about this is not that other states have tried this kind of influence operation our politics or the fact that there has emerged a significant for-profit sector which monetizes American political polarization for private benefit in uh, countries like Poland and Macedonia and Kosovo. What disturbs me more is that the federal government has not taken it upon itself as part of its mission to alert the American people as to what is being done and to develop some consensus around who is trying to influence our politics and how. And that's a shame because that is an eminently feasible task. There are grassroots fact checkers all around the world and all around the United States who are routinely spotting activity which appears to be fake, which various private organizations that are not that well resourced are able to trace back to state actors in uh, Russia and Iran and elsewhere. And so if that's what can be done with the resources they have available, what could be done with the resources the U.S. government has available would be a pretty thorough understanding of who is reaching out to inject content into our political discussions, what ideas are they pushing, how are they doing it, and providing some sense of awareness to the American people over what those efforts are. And that's not happening. And that's a travesty. So I know your own research has done a lot of that work, trying to identify fake news and misinformation campaigns. And so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about your own work and also talk about what it portends for the 2020 election cycle. There are two elements of the work. And, you know, we should should talk a little bit about them separately. So one is just trying to understand who has done what to whom going back to, uh, you know, 2011, 2012. And so we've been trying to identify online political influence efforts in which one country reaches out to some political group and tries to influence them through creating content which appears to be organic, tries to pretend it's part of the natural discussion. When we look at that, we have found so far 96 of these things uh, going back to 2011, 76 campaigns where one country reached out and tried to tweak politics in another country, uh, targeting 30 different countries and 20 times when governments did that to their own populations. Across these, the set of issues that are picked on range dramatically. So there's everything from in the United States, pushing on uh, both sides, for example, of uh, debates about gun control and police violence and the expansion of healthcare, to in different parts of the Middle East, fairly anodyne promotions of foreign policy ideas which would be favorable to Saudi Arabia or the United Arab Emirates or Egypt. You know, not picking at like the fine fault lines within a society, but generally saying, you know, hey, this person we like is good. 
like uh, General Haftar in Libya, or this state that we dislike is bad, they're doing bad things in the region, as when those, those countries um, try to reduce Qatar's standing in the, in the region. So that's one side of the work. And that's really just trying to understand, like, who's doing this stuff? What are the issues that they're talking about? What are the platforms that they're using? You know, kind of wrapping our heads around the issue. The second piece of work uh, has been more technical, which is trying to show basically how hard it would be to develop credible estimates of the volume and nature of influence campaigns targeting the United States. It's that latter piece which makes me think developing some broad public awareness would be eminently feasible. Because what uh, my colleague uh, Mesa Malizada, who's a senior research scientist here, and Josh Tucker at NYU and Cody Buntain at uh, New Jersey Institute of Technology find, is that the content produced by these nation-state influence campaigns, it's like pretty easy to distinguish from normal activity. And given that, and the resources that the federal government could put in to tracking and identifying content that is part of these campaigns, it should be possible to provide people with a pretty accurate estimate of the volume of content that's being produced. You know, we're trying to almost do a proof by example on that, right? If we can engineer that with the amount of time and energy you can put in a research lab with a little bit of support uh, from donors, imagine what the federal government can do with all the research resources at its disposal. So it's interesting. So you've talked about the U.S. government, and you've talked mm-hmm. about foreign actors, but of course the third leg of the stool, if you will, are these big tech firms, right? Absolutely. Like Facebook and Twitter. And I'm curious as to what role they have played that you think they should play in terms of dealing with the spread of fake news and misinformation. What the platforms uh, do to varying degrees of success is they try to manage the information that is presented on their platforms, and they try to do so in a way that is based relatively strongly around the nature of the content. And that turns out to be kind of a hard thing, because if you think, think about like the prohibitions on political speech we have in the United States around true political speech, right? leave aside whether it's like lying or not. What our laws and regulations basically instantiate is that if you are an American person, you can spend on political speech and you can do so with very few restrictions, although we impose some on direct donations to political campaigns. If you are not an American person, you don't have the right to do that in the United States, at least not in federal elections. In state elections, it it varies by state. So if you think about the position that puts the technology platforms in, That's a very hard standard for them to meet because they have millions or hundreds of millions, or in the case of Facebook, billions of people on the platform. They have millions of accounts being created every day. And to adjudicate that standard, they would have to sort out which people claiming to be in the United States are actually American persons and which ones are not. It's very hard to do. And they are serving uh, a global community each of whom is in a state that has different standards for who can say what kinds of things about politics, even among liberal democracies, right? There are things you can't say about politics in the United Kingdom at certain times that you can say at other times because they have rules about electioneering outside of certain uh, distance from an election. There are different libel standards in the United States. So there are are different standards for official secrets. 
So there are things that you could say about leaked documents in the United States legally that you couldn't say in the UK. And kind of like multiply that across all the countries. So what the platforms have tried to do is figure out what's a set of standards that we could apply broadly that would both address the concern that people who don't have standing to influence politics in a given place uh, are trying to influence those politics and avoid censoring the use of the platforms for political discussion. That's, that's just like a brutal task. I think it, it bears being like a little bit sympathetic to their challenge. That being said, the progress has been different across different platforms. So Twitter uh, has worked, I think, quite hard and been quite transparent about their efforts to remove what they call uh, inauthentic activity and to um, uh, crack down on activity that is run by nation states targeting their own citizens or others. Facebook has done so as well, although with less transparency and, and less, less aggression. What's interesting about this is, you know, one of the things that COVID pandemic revealed is that the platforms have a tremendous capacity to identify content that they wish to take down. And at different points in the pandemic, they've been like varying degrees of aggressiveness about removing uh, certain kinds of content from their platforms or making it very hard to find. So, for example, information on fake cures has become quite hard to find. That tells you that their capacity for managing speech about political topics is huge. They could shut down discussion of entire topics if they wanted to. And that's a that's kind of like an uncomfortable thing, because on the one hand, it would be great if they removed discussions of the kinds of things that troll factories in Poland are using to generate ad revenue from Americans, because a lot of that is highly divisive, obnoxious content that few uh, real Americans would want to put online. On the other hand, it could also be used to favor one party or the other, or in autocratic governments to censor political discussion altogether in ways we we wouldn't like. So, you know, I, I think there's no like simple answer. But what COVID has made clear is if if a human can pick out, this is an example of someone saying A, and this is an example of someone saying B, then the platforms can develop algorithms to do that same thing with high confidence on millions or billions of pieces of content every day. My team's been collecting narratives on COVID misinformation from March. And it's a really interesting example of how even in biomedical spaces where one would think truth is relatively unambiguous, it can be very hard to sort out what is in fact correct. So early on, there were a lot of uh, narratives around high doses of vitamins being prophylactic against COVID and being something that states should really investigate. And a number of fact-checking websites identified those as false claims. There's now some epidemiological evidence that maybe that stuff actually works. And there was, you know, the New York Times last weekend was reporting on uh, some subclinical evidence suggesting that um, vitamin D deficiency is a huge issue in vulnerability to very severe outcomes from COVID. And so those things which were identified by fact-checking networks well-intentioned as like obviously fake, like like how could this possibly be true early on? Some of them turn out to maybe have some validity to them. And I think that is a exemplar of a deeper problem with fact-checking, which is there are many, many things that are important for thinking about politics, which are inherently ambiguous. What makes it legitimate or not as speech is some combination of who is saying it, 
where are they saying it and what are they saying? And when you bring those three things together, that becomes uh, extremely difficult for these technology platforms to manage. Well, an even more basic example is in the very beginning, the US government was saying, please don't wear masks. We don't have enough for our frontline workers. And then it became, if you don't wear a mask, you're spreading the disease. So just in a very short period of time, we've seen something really change course. And social media has captured all of that, I think. Yeah. And that, I mean, that one's a great example too, where there was, you know, there was some scientific uncertainty early on. There was concern that people wearing masks would touch their faces more often. And if surface transmission was the key mechanism, that that would be a real problem. And absolutely, the, 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 as the scientific consensus has moved, it's become hard. And, you know, I think what's, what's been really encouraging about the misinformation on COVID, <laughs> to the extent that that kind of thing can be encouraging, there is a massive grassroots fact-checking community all around the world which in every country our team looked in, there was at least one and usually several local fact-checking networks on COVID-related misinformation. And a lot of that information about what is false and what is not and what are the stories people are promoting was making it into various kinds of aggregators who were making it easily available for the interested public. It's not like finding this stuff is that hard or some great mystery anymore. What hasn't yet happened is companies have not yet in a really effective way taken the existence of those networks and the existence of those grassroots fact checkers and figured out how to pull the information that they're bringing together in a, in, a, in a powerful way and present it to consumers or build it into products that will let consumers exercise more control over their information environment. So in line with the name of this podcast, uh-huh. people are going to be thinking about election security. They're going to be hoping that their vote makes a difference. So I have two questions for you. One is going into the ballot box, what should voters really be thinking about um, in terms of fake news, election security? And my second question, which is maybe a little bit more theoretical, is are you worried about this upcoming election in terms of security? I think the thing that you want to think about before you vote is to make sure that you understand your kind of rights and obligations when it comes to uh, bringing ID, getting there by a certain time, getting ballots in by a certain uh, date if you're mailing them in. And all that kind of stuff is, you know, readily knowable. When it comes to, you know, kind of your second question around Am I worried about the election? I am uh, and I'm, I'm not. So the pessimistic part of me says there's a lot of new election technology being rolled out. Election technology used around the United States varies massively in its security and auditability and the extent to which it leaves a paper trail. And there's therefore massive potential for skullduggerous behavior by uh, various other countries or by uh, malign political actors at home. And so you could see a lot of chaos on election day. Uh, The flip side of that is because our election system is such a complex uh, hodgepodge in which counties and states set their own standards, set their own rules, have their own systems, manage the vote aggregation, it would be really hard to do something at large scale. And so I suspect we will see isolated incidents of interference and malfeasance and people's votes going awry and vote counts being unrealistic uh, and intrusion against election systems and people screwing with voter registration databases. But I don't think it is 
feasible for any country to pull off a coordinated attack to try and get a particular outcome or create a level of uncertainty that would make it impossible to know who's won within a few days of the election without leaving completely obvious fingerprints all over the place. The kind of risks to doing that seem so massive and unpredictable that I can't imagine a country trying to do it. Okay, well, we're going to end on that optimistic note. (laughs) So thank you so much for being here today. It was really interesting. I learned a lot. Elizabeth, thank you for having me. It was great speaking with you today. Go to vote.gov to register to vote in this year's election. You've been listening to Before the Ballot. This show is produced by me, Henry Barrett, with the assistance of Rose Huber. This podcast is intended to be informational only. It does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs.